1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aiden, Be- Aiden Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're talking to James Fenlon, a professor of sociology and director of the Center for Indigenous People Studies at California State University, San Bernardino. His newest book, Indian, Black and Irish, Indigenous Nations, African Peoples, European Invasions, 1492 to 1790, is the book we'll actually be talking about. But it, it reinforces a number of, of things that he's been exploring throughout his career. Going back to his first book, Cultura Side, Resistance and Survival of the Lakota Sioux Nation, continuing through his book, Indigenous Peoples and Globalization, which reflected current research writing, combining American Indian struggles for sovereignty with related issues internationally. And then prior to the the current book, his previous book, Redskins, Sports Mascots, Indian Nations and White Racism, which was written to address compelling social issues concerning native nations and their cultural sovereignty and representation. Um, He has published numerous articles and book chapters, uh, is himself of both Lakota and Irish background, as well as some Norwegian background, um, and has taught internationally on indigenous issues um, and with urban groups. He teaches on urban in- inequality, social movements, native nations, race and racism, social movements, and has worked with the Urban Conservation Corps, the Californian Indian Nations College, and recently on environmental water research with the Water research- Water Resources Policy Institute for California State University. Um, he's also an advocate for social justice around the world and has some connections with, Smor- with Smor- Swarthmore College in that regard. Um, So obviously, there's a lot going on there in terms of your career. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wonder if we could start with maybe just having you tell us a little bit about your background and how that informs your own work as a scholar. Well, great. Thank you for the uh,
1: invitation and for sponsoring this uh, discussion. So I'm tempted to use something uh, that I heard uh, the great Vine Native American Scholar um, when he get these introductions of course he had a lot more than I had and he goes oh I want to meet that guy you know <laughs> sounds interesting but um really appreciate it I suppose um without getting into any depth I think it is my um experiences in various places both um, my own background and um things that were not planned like for instance when I go down, to do um, a set of teachings in in uh, Haiti, uh, basically ESL programs and things like that. Um, I read everything I can about it, and I find about like the Black Jacobins, and uh, and uh, and I find with some of the early literature this is the first place. With the Colombian uh, invasion, uh, which is what we'd call in 1493. But even when he lands there in 1492, uh, you know, that's the first European penetration of the Americas. And so much unfolds from that. Um, and, and then uh, the and of course, that becomes the first black uh, nation, uh, uh, one of the greatest independence, you know, revolts and movements of all time. And then then after that, Martinique and, and a series of other countries, including Asian countries. And in all of this, um, uh, I kept um, both having a background of being uh of european uh but especially irish background a lot of interest readings and so on so in my first position at john carroll university um uh i um went to the world congress on human uh, uh, violence and human coexistence um at dublin and found myself in a good position to go and visit our old uh, fenelon family farm even though it's a french name of course Although there's some argument about that. And uh, one group says, well, we don't hold with that second T, you know, <laughs> you know, and um, traveled around, um, uh, you know, Southern Ireland a lot. Uh, and of course, a lot was focused on uh, and that was at University College Dublin, uh, uh, which I, I distinguish now so is, of course, a very, very Irish university versus Trinity, uh, you know, college and so on. Um, but then we went up to the north and there were the troubles, right? And they just had a recently had a piece on, but you could see the long term development of, um, you know, colonialization and, and a lot of its violence um, as a legacy effect. And so I I compared that to um, what I had known, uh, both uh, often talking about being of some Irish descent um, and what that means in terms of being an American. Um, and so that's what informed the book. And it's those kinds of
0: experiences that shaped my, um, my worldview. So I was wondering if we could maybe just go more in-depth into the book itself. Then um, it, it's effectively a comparative study of, of Irish, Black, and Native American experiences. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of a simplification. But, but could you talk us through the, the content of the comparison that you're exploring in this book? What makes these cases similar? And maybe also what makes them different?
1: Yes, wonderful, and I love how you reversed the order. You know, especially for this podcast. But <laughs> sure, um, sure. <laughs> yeah, it started a lot with uh, a lot of major race studies, including as it was beginning to penetrate, uh, but not do that well uh, within the World Systems Research Group, um, which had looked at, for instance, Ireland and colonization processes and so on. Um, but I began to realize that the first great racialization was of the so called Indian, especially uh, in the Caribbean conquest. Um, and so, um, but I was immediately f- faced with uh, a series of things that gets more connected to even the formation of capitalism a- and colonization. So, you have a lot of waves of the Spanish and in other places, the Portuguese. Um, and then shortly behind that, of course, you know you have the Dutch and the French and others, but the England, uh, the next major phase I go in Epoch um, is really controlled by the English and it becomes settler colonialism. And it's not only resource extraction, it's bringing settlers, but uh, uh, so a lot of these uh, people were um, uh, Irish. Uh, and then of course there were maximal waves uh, of the Catholic Irish being, you know, expelled and deported and suppressed in various ways, um, uh, especially within the so-called uh, indentured uh, categories, you know, very, very continuation of oppression of uh, their places, you know, within Ireland, uh, hundreds of years, which, you know, I always have to note the the colonization there uh, preceded uh, the Colombian penetration uh, and the American conquest. And so many scholars kind of forget that, especially those that, that look at that creation of white. And then I realized that we have, I you know, I started by kind of challenging some of the concepts, uh, not all of them by any means, but um, uh, uh, of, uh, you know, the black identity being the primary racial identity. So you had Indian black, and then we're looking at the creation of white. But it is really the Irish, especially the Catholic Irish, because their experience being, you know, um, uh, so severely, um, you know, colonized, especially some of the later stages, you know, I mean, stuff that rises the level of genocide, which is what was being, you know, discussed uh, at University College Dublin at the time, was about 97, I think. Um, and then I realized that's really... That that's instructive of this last major category, which doesn't really take full effect until the creation of the United States. Um, you can literally see it in the census. It's the only race mentioned in the census, white. Um, but and then the the most the largest waves of the Irish are about to come, also an experience of late-stage colonization. So that's really how it
0: ends up being a major set
1: of comparative um discussions. Mm-hmm
0: where would you see then divergence in terms of those histories like when does being irish stop being similar to being african-american or being native american
1: um well almost from the point of um uh uh, of being part of the the uh um you know the for the coerced migratory group uh, for labor purposes um because they're leaving maximal suppression Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is what is instructive to all the work. I've always said this a lot. In fact, uh, the English even called that, you know, beyond the pale, that Mm -hmm. would be the savage, you know, chieftains or whatever. And then also a lower order race. The word race was used a lot, right? Uh, But when uh, Irish are both forced, and, you know, there's some some choice there, of course, not a lot. Later on, there'll be a lot of so-called choice, but even that's not, really it's more systemically you know forced choice um uh irish come to the new world and this whole idea of this in, indentured servitude or whatever the position is which can be pretty damn brutal itself immediately begins one being of a european background and a non-visible or easily easily visible racial identifier begins to emerge as a as a major form uh, of stratification um which really it doesn't hit its full import until the united states is created and you get those um those um in the 1800s uh those large uh, waves of migration mm-hmm. and that's when you get some early works i think there's some of the earlier works like *No ignatius how the irish became white and so on
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um and in a way you exp- we explain you know there's still a lot of And there would be for a long time, you know, uh, against um, Irish per se, and then also, you know, Catholic Europeans and so on. And some pretty brutal religious wars in Europe um, uh, was an extension of that. But all of a sudden, one's positionality comes in. And that is, um, uh, and I think some people began to use the terms in a wide variety of ways, optional ethnicity. So if you could uh, shed your ethnicity or at least you know, um, make it less, uh, you could identify with the mainstream group and your your world was a better place for you. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, you mentioned this just kind of briefly there, but um, it does, it is quite obvious that like capitalism as a, as a thing is really running throughout all of this. So how much is this really just a history of capitalism?
1: Well, you know, in a bunch of the fields, including my own sociology, but uh, they've really been uh, and they're going back to other works like Cedric uh, Robinson, all these people that talk about racialized capitalism. Mm-hmm. But in a way, they've got the they've uh, they've by separating the terms, they act like it's a special kind of capitalism. Capitalism undergoes formation um, at the same time that broad systemic racial racialization occurs in the colonization periods. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm coming stronger and stronger um, uh, into that mode. And what's really important there is, of course, you get all this resource extraction, especially by the Spanish and in other places, the Portuguese and the Caribbean. Uh, And then you begin the institutionalization of it. So the English rise. But this is why a lot of people would see the Dutch, for instance, or the Netherlands as um, hegemonic, which I believe they never are, but they're in early in the game at um, not only the transatlantic slave trade, but investing in it uh, with insurance. In fact, like Lloyd's of London, some people done some great work on that. Um, and so institutions of, that are central to capitalism um, are emerging at the same time. And perhaps most important of all, so what I do in the book, I certainly had no intention of doing it, is I keep running into these, um, they come privateers, they really kind of like organized private uh, uh, pirates in the name of the crown, uh, and they're they're starting you know even in 1550 and they're raging by 1570 1580 up into the 1600s right. Uh, but they would raid Spanish galleons, uh, you know. They especially wanted gold and stuff. But if they captured um, Africans to be as slaves, they would try and sell them too. Mm-hmm. So that when they form the English colonies, um, especially in Virginia, it's a it's actually it's a company town. It's literally a company town. So I find myself revisiting stuff like 1619. And and some of those early folks are of Irish descent, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then later on, there'll be even more. And, it, and then a lot of people uh, see that. Uh, within the Bacon's Rebellion, you know, when indentured servitudes and all, I don't think so. I think it's so connected with capitalism. You cannot distinguish, you know, the difference. Mm -hmm. And so vast fortunes are being made and going back to these countries, um, but England that had already perfected some of this. Uh, So one of the points I made, and then later on, I get into a flat out comparison with Hispaniola and Haiti, uh, which I certainly had never intended, Um, you begin to see that uh, it was their control over labor and resources in Ireland, some of it preceding 1492. And and for instance, uh, the Kilkenny laws, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which, you know, uh, later on, uh, look, uh, well, the penal laws are taken from it. And the penal laws actually are a perfect, segue uh into the uh the institutionalization of the race laws in virginia so you see this colonization which is integral to the development of capitalism maximized resource extraction uh wealth production within countries and then a movement to the institutionalization of that even trans- transatlantic or transoceanic uh transnational uh Banking, shipping, labor. Mm-hmm. And so when England and other places begin to um, industrialize, uh, it's uh, it's just kind of a
0: natural flow mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, All of this that you're talking about of sort of the the history of of both race and capitalism in the Atlantic world, there's obviously a really rich literature on that. and, and you're kind of even referencing some of these people like Cedric Robinson or or even Noel Ignatiev, who's looking at maybe a narrower period in that. Which are, who are the scholars that you would see yourself as being in conversation with or in conversation against maybe yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah that, well there's people who have looked at some of this so I use Oliver Cromwell Cox uh, among others um and he's really looking at uh you know capitalism um and people like marx dance around it but he gets so lost in the class stratification that it's like hard to get back to these these incredibly huge um you know racial categories which, you know, for the Black is almost entirely maximize um, uh, uh, racialized labor exploitation Mm -hmm. uh, to develop the plantations. But then there's there's almost the erasure of the indigenous or the Indian is so strong uh, that um, we just completely forget uh, to look at them uh, 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 and us as nations uh, and therefore um, as nations that were occupying lands. And so taking over the lands, which I think is the essential feature of almost all empires in the history of the world, um, is that's a racialized, heavily racialized now. And that contributes as much to uh, the wealth of nations um, as uh, as uh, anything else. And then finally, the early exploitation of uh, labor and colony inside uh, of Ireland by the English. Uh, but also, the Spanish see this. In fact, Columbus has this little island off uh, just off of Madeira, and they see these sugar plantations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and they see it's easy to control on an island. So they transfer that almost immediately to the Caribbean. Uh, But then the idea of plantations, and if I'm correct, um, and your readers would know this, I'm pretty certain I am, the Ulster plantation had already been created up in uh, the uh, northeast uh, of Ireland proper. So the plantation model was already there. Mm -hmm. And the plantation model is the agricultural part. So that's where I address Wallerstein. But Wallerstein also never really, um, uh, so it's a pretty bold statement, but he never really uh, looks at these broad racialization patterns um, other than noting the labor exploitation of Africans. But once you begin to see this in this massive uh, taking of lands, like most of the world systems people, so that'd be Andre Frank, another person um, who we got along quite well with, but um, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein, Giovanni Arrighi, um, and then sociology, Randall Collins um, and some other folks were at this one at, one at Northwestern. It was kind of like my outing, so to speak. And all of a sudden I presented that the Louisiana Purchase uh, was the single biggest uh, expansion uh, ideologically and in terms of growth-wise in actual real terms of the modern world system. And of course, people were looking at, you would say that in front of Wallerstein. And, and um, so I like to use a terrible uh, TV analogy. That's like, well, Mikey likes it. He was okay with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it needed to be unpacked and everything. And so if we see that, you know, like the Louisiana Purchase, which is really, you know, I mean, purchase of what, right? So it's a capitalist term, purchase of what? So nations of people you've never met mm-hmm. uh, over uh, lands that you've never been on over territories, you don't know how far they go. Then we realize it's it's an act of extreme racialized capitalism. Uh, and then especially if we see that uh, in an earlier mode, and that includes people like Andrew Jackson and so on, um, uh, when they do this and they have the great Indian removals, often referred to as a trail of tears for some of the peoples in the Southeast, which was another thing I ran into. So your readers might wanna follow up on this. I have a couple of students, so maybe they'll get out in front of them. Um, there not only was a Northwest ordinance, there was a Southwest ordinance, right? And then, so that was, you remove the Indian population. Now you have all this land, but on top of that, you build uh, these uh, new plantation systems, especially cotton plantations, which are already moving toward a kind of industrialism. And that's where you get in, you bring in a lot of middle, middle level managers and you run into an interesting thing, the Scots Irish, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're already a middleman in Ireland and that's where you see that legacy of colonialism too. Uh, and so a lot of them come over as middle level managers and some Catholic can, uh, uh, other Irish, uh, can move into that or can then be identified, um, as white and end up controlling, um, you know, some of the black populations, but the large waves are going to hit up in the Northeast.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was one of the things I was trying to get at with the sort of this question of where the limits of the comparison that does seem to be always like the end point of Irish racialization is that is this is this idea of whiteness. Right. And, and there are certain privileges that you get as Irish people um, that are that are not going to be extended to African-Americans or to Native Americans. Um, and that kind of that paradox of being both colonized but then ending up being colonizers is something quite curious about about the Irish experience um maybe somewhat related to that I was going to ask I mean if you're you're taking these three somewhat similar but disparate stories and trying to put them together over about 500 years that's not easy (laughs) How, how do you tell a 500 year story without yourself getting lost in the weeds of it um or or kind of flattening out these important differences or whatever
1: well that's exactly it um and so what i did is develop a model for doing that so i identify four epochs and then i have case studies within each of the uh the epochs right or the, the equivalent of case studies are really not cases the way we tend to think of it but large you know uh national structures or sometimes the development of city states or colonies right um, that illustrate that. And one has to, you know, use a certain amount of selectivity in doing that. Um, and it was at that point in time. So the first one, that's how Indian, black and Irish, and then it was going to be the global other, right? Uh, so the first one runs from 1492 to about 1620 or wherever you want to end it at. Um, and that's a construction of the Indian and the then also the construction of the African as a black. So the the African, African peoples coming from nations and societies are not really thought of as Black or, or Negro or the different words that were being used at the time uh, until you've taken them across the Atlantic and transplanted them, and especially multi-generational, although, you know, an incredible percentage die uh, within a short period of time because they're just being worked to death. And so then you actually have the construction of the Black, but it's relatively The numbers are surprisingly small. So people like Resendiz and all this have looked at places, especially in Latin and Spanish America, and they find a lot more Indian peoples are being enslaved on a much larger scale. But when this takes off with England and a lot of other players, and they become the premier slave traders in the world with the Royal African Company, again, a company, you know, this is the formation of capitalism. This is literally the formation of capitalism, right? Uh, And, uh when they're driving that on up so that's that second epoch the black and then that goes from 1620 to um you know one could end at 1780 1776 whenever one wants uh and uh now you've got the construction of the white and that's where the Irish are playing a bigger part uh, but primarily still as a uh, mostly subordinated uh uh group um because of their ethnicity and that's what makes the sheer distinction so I, I end the case studies after 1790 and then an incredible thing happens but it's also based on what you were just addressing right there um i see racial formation and therefore racism as taking two huge different bends um which is still not uh, uh really resolved um in europe Uh, versus America, right? So it it is very much skin tone color, very much visible identifiers, and very much the idea of the savage uncivilized other, right? Connected with both of those things. Um, Really started with, um, you know, uh, native indigenous peoples first, and then extended to people taken out of African nations. Um, And so some of that had been explored, but never really fully systematized. By the English um, in the, the the colonization of Ireland. Um, however, uh, um, when it starts to explode into a whole world system, or the Atlantic system, as you know, people like to um, refer to it. Um, there's all kinds of things that we think of as race, but it's really uh, uh, ethno-racial or eth- uh, ethnic domination, um, which is what the Irish are experiencing. They're, they're differentiating between, especially the Ga- Catholic and the Gaelic Irish, um, and I'm, I'm. They're in a territory that I'm not necessarily expert on, so always want to hear more. Um, but they use that as a primary signification difference in controlling uh, the the Irish population in Ireland, um, and so therefore ethnicity and this also explains even what everybody thinks is uh you know a great racial genocide the holocaust of the jewish population but like irish themselves there's very little visible identifier difference in mm-hmm. fact the, the the nazis themselves have to get special hunters from jewish people themselves to root out uh the last ages of jewish people mm-hmm. And um, the Spanish had dealt with this when their conversos, when people would either uh, Jewish and then Muslim that did have some identifiers with them. Uh, and that's really the Inquisition uh, and all the things that go with that. So the English were doing that, too. And so ethnicity, uh, ethno-nationality rises as a primary means of domination uh, and supremacy in Europe. And you can really see that uh, in the, the the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews. And so, um, but then racialization becomes so intense with visible skin tone identifier and all the rest of it in the Americas that it becomes a dominant system. Um, And then it takes, in a way it takes back over a lot of it after World War II, very late. Um, uh, And then you can see all this other forms of racialization. So other countries begin to identify race that way. Mm You know, one one other thing that I, I certainly was not intend, intending. So I was, I was looking more and more at that, and I wasn't intending to look at uh, the deep-set uh, colonization uh, uh, of Ireland as a preset. But I began to observe something as I began to see these uh, processes in Hispaniola, which are first over the Indian nations, Indian people. And so the creation of the Black, and then in Haiti, and very complicated in the Dominican Republic. Um, you know, happen later on, right? And then I'm looking at it and all of a sudden I realized, wow, because I was earlier, I had, you know, done stuff like in the Kilkenny laws and so on, where did the penal laws come from? Where did this, and then Cromwell's suppression and all the rest of these kinds of things. All of a sudden I realized, wow, Ireland and Hispaniola are about the same size. <laughs> and, um, and then I go, wow. And then you look at the population changes in a way, they're reverse if we're depending on what numbers you accept. And there's a lot of dialogue about that. Um, and so uh you go, wow, I go, wow, you've got almost the perfect comparative analysis here. Um, and then especially you have the rise in the Irish population, um, and then these huge amounts taken on out for immigration purposes. Um, and then some by choice, but it's just really not choice at all. I mean, what, what else are you going to do? Die of starvation mm-hmm. during the so-called potato famine times uh, and so on, which is using a food as, uh, as a suppression. I began to realize, but now race had become dominant in the Caribbean and later on in the Americas. Uh, in fact, it's all stuck in the laws and everything on else like that. Whereas uh, uh, ethnicity... Uh, religious, uh, cultural, linguistic, and so on, mm. had become the dominant parent uh, paradigm in most of Europe. Plus, Ireland ultimately can struggle for its own independence. And uh, the Irish sons and daughters, especially in places like America and, and especially the other English colonies, ultimately become m- members of the dominant group because of the racialization pattern in the Americas.
0: I mean, a lot of this gets at um one of the the fundamental problems of trying to write anything about race is how slippery a term it can be and how it can shift its meaning really really quickly from one place to another or one time to another and there does seem to be a growing recognition i think among irish studies scholars that they need to start thinking more about race as as a something of an outsider to irish studies what was your sense of of the field of irish studies in terms of how they think about race like were you disappointed were you impressed where where would you like to see more work done about about race at ireland or race and irishness
1: wow great question i hadn't really thought about it till 97 when i was over there and i heard some of the then cutting edge dialogues that were emerging at that conference on um, at university college dublin and i noticed a, a distinct difference between that and it's trinity college right that's there in dublin too Mm -hmm. yeah so um and so of course trinity college is the colonizers university right which is precisely what happened in the united states of america whereas university college dublin once ireland um, is uh, independent uh, but it takes a long time for those voices to arise because you're challenging uh, most of the history and the idea of the modern world Um, When one begins to uh, challenge that and you still had uh, Northern Ireland and still have it, you know, to this day. So I think that um, I'm not certain how far it's gone. We gave a couple of, uh, in fact, when I came back from that, I gave a presentation for the world systems group and Dennis O'Hearn among other peoples um, were um, in the audience and they they seemed to really like it. They wanted to push a little bit farther. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, right then my, um, my father passed away, so I had to leave. Um, con- we continued to stay you know, in contact. And we've been at some multiple things before. So I think the idea of seeing this difference, uh, the colonization pattern as the dominant colonization pattern of the Americas, and then much of the world, becomes highly racialized. In some places, ethno-racial. Uh, but in the Americas, it's just outright racialized, right? Uh, and it's feeding uh, these these companies and these uh, corporations that become the heart of capitalism. Um, how does that occur in Ireland, both either in its independent struggle um, and then, of course, after it's independent? Oh. Um, I think, that, you know, there had to be a lot of sorting out of what happened in Ireland itself. But it's when I go up to Northern Ireland and then um it got stopped both in um, in Belfast uh and in and I love the term, you know, is it dairy, is it London dairy, or is it uh, free dairy, right? <laughs> you know, and this idea of this relationship to the land and colonization patterns, um, and so it's it's becomes ethnicized. Uh so what is that comparison um, versus what happens to a lot of Irish people that I've heard, I don't know, but I've heard a lot of uh, uh, people in Ireland um, and Irish scholars, you know, kind of look at second, third, fourth and fifth generation Americans mm-hmm. of Irish descent and they go, well, how Irish are you? Right. And, and I think that's what needs to be
0: explored. hmm. So you, you talk about this, um, maybe at the very start of the book, as being the culmination of, of a very long, um, a very long kind of series of scholarly works. Um, has this kind of put a cap on things for you or are you working on anything new? Will you continue working in this area? Basically, what's next for you?
1: Well, um, I want to do some creative writing. Uh, I could put a couple of things in some major journals probably even our lead journal in sociology, but I would have to spend so much effort into it, especially because of the things that happened on Standing Rock. And so I've known a lot of social movement scholars. And in fact, if you're doing this kind of work, this five-year analysis, you're looking at a lot of social movements, you know, um, uh, constantly. And so, um, but really the one that I have committed to doing was thinking of backing off a little bit, but people are saying I need to, is uh, I broke this into two. This was a 500-year analysis. So the opening introduction and the frames of analysis take the whole 500 years. But I got so bogged down looking at two things. One is the formation of capitalism, which was not my intent. And they're so integrated and integral. I don't think capitalism could have formed without the racialized colonization of the Americas. Um, But likewise, I don't think racism took hold uh, without the maximize wealth production uh, that came out of uh, first the colonies. And then my second problem is uh, the formation of the United States, which uh, introduces analytically, because of failure to do with these things, one of the biggest distortions that I know of in all the social sciences, right? So uh, we Americans, or at least some of us, um, tend to think of ourselves as having produced this democratic society, You know, um, that has which and I love uh, Wallerstein's take on it, you know, the free market capitalism. He goes free markets, free markets. Well, where are they? Has there ever even been such a thing? Right. Like all markets and companies move toward monopolization and control and dominance. All of them. There's no there's no exception to the rule. So where are these free markets? (laughs) He goes. Right. Um, But the other one is the idea of democracy, because within the Constitution of the United States, without ever once mentioning race, unbelievably, except for Indians every now and then, and even that rarely, uh, you have a total racialized uh, democracy, and and then, which relies, and i telling this to my students, and I told this to a couple of scholars, one at Michigan and some other ones, and I think they feel I'm probably challenging too much, but I noticed that Graeber and Wengro um, in a way, go at the same thing, right? So that almost all the philosophical and social structural underpinnings are based on something called the Enlightenment. But it, so once I've done this kind of analysis, I go, well, that's interesting. First of all, the Enlightenment is damn bloody, even in Europe itself, with okay. the so-called religious wars, which are part of it. But more importantly, um, the largest racialized constructions, the largest racialized genocides, uh, probably on Earth, had occurred in the Americas. And the largest racialized exploitation for labor persons, ra- racial enslavement, it ends up being of blacks versus blacks and Indians, you know, in, in the world, as far as I can tell, had happened in the Americas and the formation of capitalism. Um, and when these had had, had, um, had happened, so we can just say, and I take my whole critique down into three words, enlightenment for who? So if you're Native nations and American Indians, and you can make a similar argument, you know, uh, for the Gaelic Irish, Gaelic Catholic Irish, um, if you're Native American, there's nothing enlightening about this period, right? <laughs> you're being wiped out, genocidally destroyed. And if you're of African descent and called Black and enslaved, there's nothing enlightening about this. And in the creation of the United States, what do you mean democracy, you know? Uh, or freedom for all men, you know, in patriarchy, because it was not—it was the opposite for blacks and Indians. And therefore, the United States has presented itself as this product of enlightenment, without struggling with uh, the the deep racialization patterns, which, in a complex way, includes
0: um, the Irish, and it challenges the very notion of progressiveness itself. Mm-hmm. Well, as as this kind of final comment from you suggests, there's there's just obviously like a lot of very dense and complicated and very important uh, questions running through this book. Um, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us talk to us about it.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thank you for um exploring especially this um aspect of it. And um, if you get uh, some more feedback and want to pursue anything on else, I'm I'm game for it because that second book is coming on out and that'll be. After an introductory thing, that'll be 1776 to 2024, 26, probably 26, which makes for a nice decennial break, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Cool.
1: Thanks so much. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you.